Hello and welcome to the Arrow Video Podcast with Sam and Dan. My name is Dan Martin, special effects artist and um, podcaster, and I'm joined as ever by my lovely co-host... Sam Ashurst, and I direct the most original film of the year, and I co-host the greatest podcast of the past 100 years. Yeah, so maybe longer. At least. I mean, I think if you're going to 100 years, you can just say all time. Because there's I, not many good podcasts pre... Well, <laughs> I, 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 I just, well, I don't know that. I don't know that for a fact. And I, I, I hate people that say all time because there might have been one, you know, in zero, zero BC. Zero, zero BC? That's how they... You can go back before that, <laughs> given that the numbers go up the further back you go. You easily. <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> speaking of being a heathen, uh, we are here to talk about Hellraiser 2. Yeah. Um, if you haven't listened to our Hellraiser podcast, what are you doing? Uh, but this is the first sequel to a film that we've previously covered that we've ever done. Yeah, not the first sequel because obviously we do Psycho 2, exactly. but it's the first time we've done a... Yeah, exactly. And, and so um, do you think we need to go into the plot of this one? Uh, we should skim it a little bit. Go on. Uh, it follows directly on from Hellraiser. In mm-hmm. fact, it starts as a lot of 80s sequels did with a little recap. Um, like the most incoherent recap I've ever seen. And then in my they life. do the recap again about 15 minutes, 20 minutes in, don't but, they? But properly that time. Yeah. So well, I, that's fair enough. Is it though? Yeah. I don't know. I, I like it's not the, helpful. I like the hit the ground running sequel approach. Oh, so do um, I. From I, the I, 80s. I. Absolutely, but but that specific montage is gibberish. It's just a tonal. It's it's just a little tonal holder. Like I, mm. it's comparatively recent. Like uh, as in the there wasn't a big gap between the two films. No, no, they they went straight um, into it. They didn't went they? pretty much straight into it. Um, of the success of the first one. So I think it was fair to say that it was and it was a and it was a sequel that was born out of the raging success of the first one. Yeah. So it's fair to say that they're playing to a, a pre existing audience. Absolutely. So it, I don't think they needed to remind us too much about the actual narrative, but it is nice to just go, okay, here we go. Here's some fucking crazy bloodletting. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, it, it was it was released sort of uh, almost immediately after the first one. Hellraiser's eighty seven. This is eighty eight, yeah, which yeah. is kind of insane. And you know, uh, I'm sorry about this, dear listener. I I know that I'm going to get hated for this, but I don't really like this one. Really? Um, yeah, this for me is as bad as the bad Hellraiser sequels. It has all the kind of problems that the other other ones have. You know, such as getting someone to direct it who shouldn't necessarily be a director. Um, yeah, well, it's a first-time writer, first-time director, isn't it? Yes. So it's... Yeah, there's some interesting choices. There are some very interesting But they're choices. mates of Clive's, aren't they? They're from his old gang, basically. Well, um, yeah, the, the director, Tony Randall, was an executive uh, at New World yeah. and, and an editor on, on Hellraiser um, who hadn't directed before. And, uh, you know, there's a story on the documentary on the disc on Leviathan where they talk about how on the first day of shooting he was too scared to leave his office, which I do feel sorry for him for. Um, but I also think that maybe you shouldn't be directing the sequel to one of the greatest horror films. Of the <laughs> <day>. <laughs> well, and then and obviously uh, Peter Atkins, who wrote it, yes. uh, had done some acting and some music stuff, but he was part of Clive's old like yeah. ragtag gang. And he yeah. was he acted in... Um, the Forbidden, which yes. was based on the short story that would later become Candyman. So he's got like they both have kind of uh, oh, absolutely. Hellraiser cred. Yeah, but but, but but not necessarily in the right way. Exactly. 
do you think that Hellraiser cred is enough for you to be the director? Well, given what's going on at the moment <laughs> and how that's all linked to Hellraiser cred of sorts. Yeah. I don't know. Like, the thing is, I, I certainly like it. Mm. It's definitely not as good as Hellraiser. No, nothing is, though, really. Like, it is, like, it is one yeah, of Hellraiser those great. One of those incredible movies. Um, there's, I think there's a lot to enjoy in Hellraiser 2. Um, I want to hear from you about that. I think the... Well, it's mostly special effects. I think yeah. The, <laughs> what a surprise. Yeah. And you're right. One of the things... What was interesting, revisiting it, because I've seen number one a lot. And Me I've too. seen number two a fair few times, but I obviously hadn't seen it as recently as I Here's the thing. I, I've, I've seen number one so many times. I've seen number three so many times. Like, <laughs> again, apologies, dear listener. You prefer three to two? But I infinitely prefer three really? to two. Really? Yeah, I think... Um, because with two, they don't... Like as as much as like they want to give fans what they want, they don't actually understand what they have, and so what they do with Pinhead is ridiculous. And in the third one, obviously, they understand that Pinhead's the star. I mean, for for this one, they talk about how they wanted to turn Julia. Yeah, into, Julia was going to be the yeah. They wanted to the turn female Kruger. Did they say exactly? Yeah. They wanted to turn her into the next um, Freddy Krueger not realizing what they had in Pinhead. You know, they, yeah. they didn't really need to sort of do the work to create a horror icon because they'd already done that. Well, I mean, you know, as much as I, I, I think uh, Claire Higgins is incredible in the first one, and I think she's really incredible in the first one, in this one, not so much. And it shows what a difference a good director can make, even though Clive obviously hadn't done anything before. He clearly had a natural gift for it because the acting in this is generally across the board pretty bad. You know, the the Kenneth... Cranham is is fantastic. Obviously, Doug Bradley is always fantastic. Pretty much everyone else is bad, and so I can see why they'd want to, you know, retool the franchise, or why the audience would want the franchise to be centered around Pinhead. Because not only does he look amazing, but Doug Bradley's performance is incredible. Apart from in the surgeon scene, did you watch the surgeon scene? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> There's a, uh, there's, <laughs> there's a story in... Be careful what you wish for. That's the lesson yeah. of the surgeon scene. There's that, uh, there's that bit uh, in the deleted scene when they turn up at the end of the corridor yes. in, in their scrubs. Yes. Um, and that there's a story in Leviathan, the documentary about it that's on the disc, which is obviously great. Um, it's like two hours long. Super exhaustive. Yeah, yeah, two hours long. Which talks about Barry Norman turning up on set and being held to task for his unfavorable review of the first one. Yes. And uh, Doug Bradley talks about having stepped out of the makeup room in full pinhead regalia and bumping into Barry Norman and Barry Norman being like, oh, uh, uh, uh. And then uh, Doug says, uh, he was like, oh, hello. But in, you know, normal Doug voice, not, yeah, oh, yeah. hello. And, uh, and the incongruity of that is peculiar. And then when you watch that scene where uh, the Cenobites turn up in their doctor's scrubs and their faces are kind of covered at the and end of the corridor. Look, and they look like the Stay Puff Marshmallow they, Man they, yeah, times they've got, two. They've got the doctor's coats on over all their bondage <laughs> gear. Um, but, but then also, Doug isn't really doing the pinhead voice when he says, no, basically it, says, oh, hello. Yeah. End, and it just made me think that it was, that was like almost the same as the Barry Norman event where it's just like, 
Oh, hello. <laughs> so, so we should explain this a little bit. Basically, um, there's uh, always been this sort of mythological missing scene from Hellraiser 2, um, known as the surgeon scene, because um, as part of the sort of promo material, someone let out an image from a deleted scene of um, Pinhead and the female Cenobite dressed in full um, scrubs. And it was um, deleted, considered lost, um, but Arrow managed to find it. It's the first... Um, time it's ever been available um, yeah. on their disc, which is amazing. However, the reason I say be careful what you wish for is because obviously in fans' heads, it was probably like this crazy violent, cool you know, thing, God, yeah. Pinhead as a surgeon, it's going to be mental. Um, but in actual fact, it's uh, a couple of women running down a corridor and uh, Pinhead saying in quite a heavy northern voice, hey, what you're doing here? <laughs> a corridor, a smoking corridor that we do see a lot in the normal film anyway, yes. so it's not even like that bit was novel. It's just that still that's new. And and actually, here's one of the problems I have with the film, which is that smoking corridor, um, it's sort of a maintenance area where the bad doctor keeps all of these sort of, yeah. um, sort of comedy lunatics. And they set that up, and because they cut the surgeon scene, they never pay it off. And there is so much in this film that they set up, but they don't pay off. Another example is... Obviously, there's a whole thread about Kirsty wanting to find her dad. And, um, you know, Pinhead basically tells her, oh, no, sorry, yeah, he's in a he's in a more harder-to-get part of hell. You, you can't see him, you know, deal with it. And the reason that that's the case is that Andrew Robinson, who, who played her dad, who played Larry, read the script oh, well, and nah. refused to be a yeah. part of it. Because it is a shit script. And, and even shitter when they sort of had to rip out all the bits involving him that probably gave it yeah, again, its soul. Again in Leviathan, the, the writer's saying, oh, it was, it was really difficult to work out how to make the dad work like how she's going in to find her dad and then and then it cuts to a very candid interview with the actor saying yeah i read it and i'm like no no this is this is bum (laughs) (laughs) not his exact words but yes (laughs) paraphrasing uh and then it it cuts back to the writer and he's uh he says uh, he says oh but then you know as soon as he wasn't in it uh, i made it much easier (laughs) but yes yes uh you know and that's what you want stuff is quite that's what you want is easily easy to write scripts (laughs) just just do a first draft yeah and 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 that's the thing like hellraiser 2 has an incredible premise like you know the first one they raise hell in the second one they descend into hell that is great However, their vision of hell is bobbins. Do you not like the, the, the matte paintings and the labyrinth? I love, I love matte paintings, don't get me wrong. I, I don't mean like the, in the, the way they've kind of articulated what was in the script, but it feels like they got to the idea of, right, they go into hell and then ran out of ideas because what is this hell? Like, it's, it's a weird carnival. It's a crap, I mean... It's sort of Asherian silliness and and yeah and like you know they're sort of trying to do like greek myth style punishments in there and they're just shit (laughs) um yeah yeah i mean i think the thing is if you and and sam and i were having a conversation before we started recording about the standards you hold films to yes i just as i think he probably Actually, what order did you see the films in? Like, when you saw them? Do you see three first? I saw... Yeah, so did you. Yeah, I saw three first. Yeah. And, yeah, I I think that's interesting, because, again, going back to our our Banzai chat from last time, 
No, not from last time. From three ago now. Sorry, yes. from the last one that broadcast at the time of recording this. Now, th- this will come up again um, in in the recommendations section, but um, basically Dan is going away for a month. Yeah. So um, he has requested that we record this ages in advance. Yeah. Um, you're listening to this a month, over a month after we've recorded yeah. it. So, yes. Yeah, there'll be some emails we read out that you may have thought we've forgotten about. But yeah. They're, they're coming. They're coming. Um, they're coming. But yeah, yeah. Time travel. Uh, but yeah, so I think that there is a, there's a nostalgic fondness for three. Mm-hmm. But then the other thing is, I think if you watch them in order, and I can only suppose because of the order that we did watch them in, that two works almost like a palate cleanser for three, and three gets away with a lot because it's fun, rompy silliness mm-hmm. in a much more like 90s horror vein. Whereas to watch two straight after one, you're like, well, why is it not great like that one? Yeah, yeah. But then what is? Like, what can follow Hellraiser? Yeah, I mean, people do like Hellraiser 2. And I, and I um, like Hellraiser 2, but yeah. I feel that you have to divorce it slightly from what one is to be able to see it on its for its merit. Because it is a deeply flawed film. It's much more of a B-movie. One is art. Yeah, oh, God. Whereas yeah. whereas two is is an 80s but this is interesting because the, the mucky horror. One of the conversations we had before recording this was to do with a, a quiet place and how Dan feels about a quiet place. And I find it interesting that you're very, very hard on that film. Um, well, so I've in all the conversations I've had about it, I have sort of I've tried to say, look, I did still enjoy it. Right. It is obviously so. There's always that thing where, uh, which I call, um, I can't remember what I call it. I've mentioned this in a in a Twitter conversation with with one of our listeners. I've had quite a few Twitter conversations about this, so I apologise if I don't remember that. I don't remember who I said this to specifically. But there's a thing that happens when a film is a breakout success at festivals, mm-hmm. where it's perfect for that audience. Mm-hmm. You know, you've seen six films, you've had a skinful. It's the midnight movie. Some of the other movies you've seen might have been a bit worthy and a bit serious. And then something like John Wick comes on. Mm-hmm. And obviously the room's going to go bananas for it. It's perfect for that kind of thing. And then if you weren't at that festival, you get this kind of machine of everyone saying that it's, you know, the best thing since not just sliced bread, but bread. And I like bread a lot. Uh, <laughs> and I, yeah, so your expectations are high. And I try really hard not to allow that to colour my uh, feelings on a film. I, I saw a really good screening of um, of A Quiet Place. I saw it at the Picture House Central. Uh, it was relatively, like, it wasn't too busy. Mm. Uh, you know, it, it was a big screen, decent sound, all that kind of stuff. And it's a very competently made film. If I want to pick at it, I can put together a litany of things that are problematic with it. And most of them are things that I wouldn't, like, that wouldn't spoil a film for me. They're just mm. little, little gripes. Yeah, because that, that's the thing, like, you know, you can nitpick literally any film because, Oh, of you course. Know, uh, films would have to last a week long in order to fit in all this stuff. For them well, to and make. also you don't want just box checking. No, exactly. Um, but but I do feel that there are some world building problems with it, and I, I obviously won't go into them here. Partly because it, they're innately spoilery, mm-hmm. but partly because it, this isn't what the film we're talking about. If you do want to think less of me, <laughs> at me on Twitter, and we can have the same conversation I've been having with a few disappointed listeners who now either think less of me or in a couple of rare occasions, think slightly less of the film. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, well, but no, that's it. Uh, so first off, I want to say that I'm not trying to say that anyone isn't allowed to enjoy something that I had a problem with. Obviously, I'm not an arbiter of quality or taste. These things are, by and large, subjective, and I'm not trying to shit on anyone's 
enjoyment. I am disappointed when I don't like something. I don't go out of my way to try and dislike something. There's no value to me in disliking no, something. No, I'm the same. And, and actually, like, if it wasn't for this podcast and some of the films that we've covered, you would never hear me talking negatively about any film because I just don't put it out there. If I see a film that's bad, yeah, I just no don't, I just don't talk about it. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I my aim is to always hype up the films that I love and ignore the ones that I don't. Um, yeah, I think that's fair. And, and, you know, I, I have absolutely no problem with um, people liking stuff that I don't like because I fully understand that some people have terrible taste. Um, <laughs> but um, speaking of terrible taste, one of the things that I observed on this watch uh, of Hellraiser, which I've never noticed before, I don't know why it hasn't sort of stuck with me, but the amount of times people in this film put their finger into blood and then stick it in their mouth. <laughs> it's like, what is tasty, going tasty. on? But, well, it's mostly sugar, Sam. Yeah, yeah. Sugar syrup and food colour. Tasty. I, I watched this with... Um, uh, I watched this with my housemate, Yonatli, and um, by the third or fourth time it happened, he just said quietly to himself, everybody in this film has AIDS. Um, <laughs> because if you are going to lick blood off a dirty mattress... Yeah. That you're supposed to be moving. I mean, you know, who knows? Maybe that's a subtext about it, about could the be. transmission of disease through blood. You know, it comes it out could of... It yeah, it, yeah. It comes out of the sort of emergent gay, Liverpoolian gay scene mm. and, and the idea of being ostracised for interests. The There's a lot of sexual imagery in it, whether it's the of yonic course. leviathan or the phallic doctor tentacle head thing. I mean, that was ridiculous. Which literally has syphilis. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, that it's entirely possible that that was meant to be part of it. Yeah. And it's not like Clive wasn't at all involved in it. No, that's he, true. He, and, and, set, and he and gave he, it his blessing. Absolutely. And he defends it um, in in one of the extras. I think it's the, the really nice vintage feature yes. that's on here. It's like nearly 20 minutes long. And you can hear him, There's a, even though it's from <laughs> the time, there's an edge of defensiveness. He knows it's not. I, I feel. Yeah, no, this is I, no, me I agree with you. And the, but the thing is, it's not. He's having to defend the pr the progeny of his art. It's not something he created. Absolutely, he would have done things differently. Mm. So it's it's always a little difficult. I think. Or it, well, I said it must be a little difficult for an artist to to defend something that's removed from their own stuff when they would have done things differently. Oh God, can you imagine? Yeah, but he was. I mean, you know, they they all thought he was going to go. The Nightbreed was going to happen straight away. So that's why yeah. he wasn't doing this. Yeah, yeah. But but he's been so vocally against all of the other. Hellraisers. He hates three. He petitioned to have his name taken off it. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's so different. I mean, like they, they really got their wish of um, having a, a Freddy Krueger style um, centerpiece. Yeah, he's much much sassier. Yeah, much sassier. Um, In, uh... and, <laughs> and the whole, you know, ironic Cenobites, like the the oh DJ that God. chucks CDs. <laughs> Don't you dare say, "Oh my God!" and put your head in your hands. You like Hellraiser three as much as I do. I enjoyed. We rewatched it together. And yeah. we effing loved it. I, well, I wouldn't say I effing loved it. I wouldn't even say I fucking loved it. <laughs> I. Th you you are misremembering our experience watching this together. Yeah, but it's not because it's good. <laughs> No, but uh, well, here but we the, here we get is, into a third where you, category yeah, exactly, where, where you uh, can enjoy exactly. I mean, I, Bobbin's films. Can, uh, I really need to make this clear. I'm no way. I'm not saying that 
Hellraiser 3 is even as competent as Hellraiser 1. Um, it is, you know, it's obviously a bad film, but it's a bad film in a super, super fun way. Yeah. Whereas Hellraiser 2 is, for me, a bad film in a, oh, this is annoying kind of way. I th- I, do you think that part of that is because Hellraiser 2 at least has a shared aesthetic with 1? Probably is, And yeah. so it's harder to divorce sure them yeah, than yeah. it is for 3, which has that sort of like shiny plastic 90s thing to it, rather yeah. than the grimy, grainy 80s grunge. Because the first one feels like residential industrial. Mm. Like it's it's small home problems, it's a, it's a, it's a family it's drama. Half, it's a family drama, but it's also got this like really aggressive, dark, uh, like sort of grit to it. Mm. The second one doesn't really earn that tone. No. Um, and, and it's super, you know, it, it's really tight in terms of um, like the logic of it and in terms of the themes and so on. Um, whereas this, you know, I think you're very kindly putting some themes on, on top of it. I don't think they fully grasp what they were trying to say with it. And and stuff like, you know, where Julia says, you know, well, in the first one, I was a wicked stepmother, but in this one, I'm the evil queen. She actually, I mean, I am paraphrasing, yeah, yeah, but yeah. she doesn't say in the first one, but she says, I yeah. used to be. And though that was a lovely subtext in the original. And the fact that they've sort of taken that and turned it into text is really disappointing. Yeah, I think a lot of the things that they do carry over from the first one are done in a slightly ham-fisted way. Oh, yeah, it's like little, when they quote the, the yeah, 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 yeah. And, and, and then on top of that, you know, not only did they not give Pinhead and the Cenobites, but obviously largely Pinhead, the spotlight that they deserved and that the audience would come to think that they deserved. Yeah. But also they, like, one of the biggest and most often heard complaints about this is how quickly the Cenobites are dispatched. Like, how easily they are done away with, with weird snake bullets. Which is... What were they thinking? Yeah, that is, that was a bad choice. I mean, I really, I really like Dr. Cenobite. I think he's a, he's great fun. Uh, for me, I, I used to like him when I was younger. He was the only thing that I did like about this film and the reason that I revisited it. And I really like, you know... Well, yeah, this it, was... It's almost like the the 1967 movie, like the, 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 the weird bit where, like, he's trying to um, tempt... Is it Kirsty? But anyway, he's trying to tempt someone and a flower comes out of one of the little things and, like, a little finger that's... Yeah, that's, yeah. Like, it's oh, surreal that, and that's cool. That's Frank Meyerian stuff. That's it, gorgeous. Yeah, exactly, yeah. No, ex- exactly. But... This time, I was like, oh, my God, this is like Mr. Freeze from Batman and Robin. <laughs> well, it's because he's blue. <laughs> no, no, it's not Not in terms of the aesthetic, in terms of the fact that everything he says is a pun on the fact he's a doctor. Just like <laughs> Mr. Freeze, everything he says is a pun on the fact it's a bit cold. Blue and puns. <laughs> blue and puns. <laughs> Yeah, um, it's, well, it's interesting to see this being a patchwork of the talents of the people involved, and and sometimes that is to its benefit, and sometimes that is to its uh, detriment, because the stop motion in it is genuinely beautiful. It's got oh, yeah. amazing stop motion in it, and um, and I think a lot of the details, like the things coming out of the end of the tentacles, weren't scripted at all. They were just dis- they were just they like the the effects guys over at Image Animation. And the uh, and the stop motion guys just kind of like came up well, with that stuff. Absolutely. Well, th- this is the thing about this film is that it is so incompetent on so many levels. However, the effects team elevate it into something oh, yeah. that I've watched more than once. Like Skinless Julia is astonishing. Yeah. Like absolutely stunning. And so yeah, that and and the stop motion and you know the sort of design elements. You know, apart from the bit where. Julia gets blown down the corridor and they've basically put a sex blow-up doll in a wind tunnel. 
um, that that is detrimental. But other than that, well, it's interesting. So you, you know, we talked about that missing scene that they that they mention in um, you know that that was promotional material and everyone thought was lost and now turns up on the disc. Uh, yes. And just as you you're like, oh, finally that itch has been scratched, albeit unsatisfactorily, because it's a not an amazing scene. Yeah. And then in Leviathan, the second second part of Leviathan, the documentary, Cliff Wallace talks about the transformation Cenobite scene that shows them that, that feeds more into their previously having been human. Yeah. Which is not an aspect of the canon I'm particularly keen on. No. Um, no. And uh yeah, and he talks about some effects they did that explain why Chatterer's makeup changes from the beautiful first Chatterer to the rubbish, slightly rawhead Rexy second Chatterer. And yeah, they. Uh, are we going to do a Raw Hedrix episode one yeah, day? Yeah, I think so. I, 100% we, yeah. we, we are going to, yeah. Um, That's yeah. a promise, dear listener. Um, but yeah, and he, he says, oh, and the, you know, I don't remember if we even shot it. I think we did. Maybe my effects were bad. Maybe that's why you haven't seen it. And he's very, like, dismissive of his own work in it. But now I've got another missing scene that I want to watch. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, I guess I guess we can kind of start to wrap this up. And again, sorry, dear listener, we didn't do a plot synopsis at all at the beginning. We just <laughs> launched straight into railing on it. <laughs> but we kind of did uh, uh, along the way, basically. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. they go into hell and it's crap. Oh. <laughs> but um, should we go into recommendations based on this film, Dan? Do you, do you want to tell everyone? Can I tell everyone my favourite? bit of design conceit from it which yeah. uh, which is probably one of the most known bits of trivia about the thing but just in case anyone doesn't know it and it's definitely mentioned in at least one of the audio commentaries although actually the so there's two audio commentaries one with the writer and the director and then one with the writer the director and actress mm-hmm. and i and they're surprisingly different mm-hmm. there's a surprising amount of different information in the yeah, two yeah yeah it turns out either the writer or the director, I can't remember, was obsessed with radios, like ham radios, which is why you get that radio shot at the beginning. And he talks about uh, Morse code being hidden throughout the film. The thing I did already know oh, yes. it, yeah, is yeah. that the the drone bell that's going on in the background when they're in uh, in uh, in hell yeah. uh, that's emanating out of Vartham is uh, reads God is dead in... Uh, in Morse code, mm-hmm. which was one of the first bits of trivia I knew about this, like really quite early on. I think it was I was probably told it by one of the big boys in the video store, and I thought that that was the coolest detail. <laughs> I finally understand why you love this film, Dan, because Dan also believes that God is dead. In fact, Dan how, believes that God never existed. How can a fictional thing be dead, Sam? <laughs> and he also hates Christmas, and he also hates Star Wars, and I know which one of those I hate him for the most. <laughs> I don't hate him, just just a little bit. Um, anyway, Dan, recommend something. I'm I feeling, don't really I'm hate feeling you. affronted. <laughs> <laughs> right, what am I going to recommend? So uh, I uh, I had uh, loads and loads of notes coming into this, and uh, this morning I found out they were all gone. Uh, so I was hastily reassembling my notes. Do you know who did uh, that? Before I came here, did you delete my notes? Um, God did. Did you hate? Did you delete my notes because you hate me? God did. Because I because I don't care about Christmas. It's either God or Admiral <laughs> Akbar. One of them deleted your notes. <laughs> It's a oh, trap, etc. Yes, yes, carry on, carry on, carry um, on. Is he? Is his race? Cal- are they called the calamari? Is that, <laughs> is that really? Yeah. Oh, nothing like a tight script. It's <laughs> like we said. If it comes easy, it's probably best. <laughs> right. Um, 
So anyway, the point is, the, the bit I was having trouble, I had a couple of little epiphanies while watching it. Where I was like, yes, that's a good recommend. Uh, and then I was hobbling together, probably not as good recommends mm, on, the, on the way here, which, uh, which saddened me. But one of them struck me uh, during this conversation. So uh, my first recommendation is going to be Martyrs. Oh, amazing. What if, a fantastic recommendation, yes. Uh, I, have a, I have some problems with Martyrs. It was another film that suffered from festival success in my watching of it. I think the... So I fucking love I'm not Martyrs. Spoil, I'm not going to spoil Martyrs. I'm going to try not to spoil Martyrs because for the people who haven't seen it, it is definitely... Like, it's the script is what makes it great. It's got some very good special effects in it as well. I think the second act is largely unnecessary and could have been done in a... In a much shorter way. It's basically just gets a bit mean spirited in the second act, which I'm not super keen on. Mm. The first act reminds me of funny games, and I love. Uh, and the third act it reminds me of some other things, which I'm not going to mention. But yeah. it has one very obvious visual connection with Hellraiser Two. Yeah. Which, if you've seen it, you'll know exactly what I mean. And if you yeah. haven't seen it, well, I'm not going to say because it's a spoiler. But yeah, it's it's well worth watching. It's it often crops up on those movies so horrible you'll only watch them once uh, lists. Uh, which seem popular on the internet at the moment. No, it's good. It's why worth, don't you? Um, why don't you recommend a movie that people really will only want to watch once, Dan? I know that you must have many. Oh Christ! I can recommend movies you might not want to watch all the way through, or ever. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. So I I teach at a, an art college in London. Um, it's, you know, not a huge amount. I do one module a year, and a lot of that is taken up with me filling the gaps with just ranting about film at my students because I'm constantly appalled that these young effects students haven't seen everything. But and particularly so, stuff like the thing. Yeah, and like stuff video like drone. yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, and if you go back and listen to the podcast, you'll you'll hear me talking about on particularly on the video drone and thing episodes. Yeah, you'll hear me talking about having pulled in some ex students who hadn't seen those movies to watch with me but uh but yeah one of the, so i often get asked for oh what are your favorite effectsy films or what are your favorite whatever and so i have these lists saved in my phone <laughs> that i can just forward people of these are the must-see effects films these are the must-see this kind of film these are the mm-hmm. must-see this kind of film and one of the lists i have are what are the most extreme and horrible films you've ever seen so i do i have made that list jesus christ um and there are some on there that I think are worth more than one watch. I think there are some on there that arguably aren't worth a single watch. <laughs> a lot of the a lot of the Japanese stuff that gets into that end, things like um, Red Room, All Night Long, uh, like that those kind of movies are really horrible. All Night Long essentially is a I don't know if you remember when they banned Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, when they refused Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer a certificate, yeah, and they said it was basically a guide to murder. Like it was the their reason, the BBFC's reason was it is essentially a playbook on how to get away with murder. Right. Because, you know, Henry Lee Lucas, Michael Rooker's character, is going, Oh, you know, you've got to choose someone you don't have any connection to. It's gotta be random, do it a different way each time. Like, you know, it's basically a guide. And they were like, Oh god, especially with Furman at the helm. Yeah. Who yeah, thought yeah. that everything was replicable. You know, that that was an absolute no-go. And I was told once, and I don't remember who by, but I think it might have been Tony Clark or Psychotronic name drop uh our friend um i think he mentioned to me that uh, all night long was refused it because it was basically a stalking manual right and it's basically about how to like yeah stalk someone very efficiently and it's horrible it's a really so, horrible film there we go some recommendations of things not to watch um don't say we don't do you any favors um <laughs> and, and mars is a particularly good one because obviously even though it wasn't uh, a box office success it lost money 
the director Pascal. How do you say his second I can't name? Remember. I can't pronounce his surname. Well, Pascal. I can't remember the proper pronunciation. I should say, yeah. Pascal uh, was was offered the the Hellraiser reboot off the back of um, Martyrs. So it was, and it it went it, it went ahead for a bit. Yeah, um, and oh god, I would love to have seen it. But but anyway, did, anyway, did you see his the makeup test for it? Uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah right. It's yeah. Been pretty fun stuff. Yeah. It would have been great. But I am going to do my ref- first recommendation off the back of Hellraiser two now, and that is uh, a low budget indie uh, you might know as Labyrinth. Um, <laughs> I wondered if Labyrinth was going to come up when I was, <laughs> when I was scrabbling through. Well, what can I recommend? Sorry, that sounds like I'm demeaning your choice. It, it, I think it's a great. It does. I think it's a great choice, especially as I've just let you talk for <laughs> I'm sorry. twenty minutes about something irrelevant, and then it finally gets to me. And uh, yes, but Labyrinth is uh, a film in which uh, a, a, a paedophile um, tries to turn uh, a baby into a goblin. I think that's what it's about. Uh, it stars <laughs> David Bowie. It has some great songs. And <laughs> but um, but yeah, no, Labyrinth is amazing. I, I suspect that Dan probably doesn't like it. I love Labyrinth. It's the sort of thing he doesn't like. No, like, I absolutely um, love Labyrinth. Never-ending story. Okay, good. No, so, no, well, no. Never-ending story is problematic. Never-ending story would have been saved if Henson's had done the effect. Right. But Bob Keane, whose team image did Hellraiser, Hellraiser, Hellraiser two yeah, yeah. and Hellraiser three, ended up doing all the stuff for uh, Never-ending story because they couldn't afford Henson's. And I think that that wasn't his, like he was misplaced to be the designer for that. Mm. And the effects are pretty bloody bad in Never Ending Story. And that falls into the category. I think we may have mentioned this on the Banzai one, that I didn't see it until I was older and it therefore didn't have any of the charm for me. That's it. But yeah, Labyrinth. Labyrinth is incredible. Yeah, it's one that I saw at the cinema and, um, you know, I, I came home and wished that the Goblin King would take my little brother away. Sorry. Harry, I felt very, very guilty afterwards. So but that, luckily, he didn't take him away. Was that so because fine. you wanted to go on an adventure and meet David Bowie? Or exactly was, it, was that. it because you wanted a goblin brother? No, I mean, column A, column B. But no, I, I, I wanted to make Muppety friends. And I was like, what's the best? Like, how can I do this? I know. I'll, I'll sort of offer up my brother, go rescue him. But, you know, the, uh, it was misguided. The, the I'm the sorry, goblins, Harry. I'm glad, I'm glad you didn't get taken away by David Bowie. The goblins that replace Toby. Yes. One of them looks like my dog. That, I mean, a lot of them look like your dog. <laughs> Which is one of the my, my main point of reference when I'm trying to explain him to people. Amazing. It looks like if you made a, a labyrinth goblin uh, out of a turnip, you carved it into a turnip. But yes, uh, ignore my cynical description of this wonderful, beautiful uh, family film. If you haven't seen Labyrinth, uh, watch it instead of Hellraiser 2. It's sort of the same, but yeah, better. basically the same. We, I mean, it's a couple of years earlier, and you have to think that the yeah. the labyrinth must have inspired the design of the of the hellscape. Totally, um, it's yeah, it's amazing. I when I I was lucky enough when I left university, I was lucky enough to go and work for Jim Henson's Creature Workshop. Um, pretty early in my career, I was with them on Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and then went back for some other stuff. You know, in a very junior capacity, but they had this amazing archive. That's the the building they were in was up by the the river in Camden. If you know Camden in London. There's a place called the Pirate Castle, which is like a sort of an adventure centre, a rec centre, slightly off, slightly back from the market space. Um, and opposite that is what is now, I think, a hotel or a block of fancy flats, but it used to be the Henson's building. Um, and in their yard was an entryway to the these like Camden catacombs, essentially these massive network of tunnels underneath Camden that they just used as a... Uh, as a, an old storage space. And so on my lunch when I was there, I'd just go and explore the 
the, these giant voids underneath Camden. And the further you went back, there were no lights. <laughs> the further you went back with your torch, the older the moulds got. I think mm. I got back as far as um, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles in the archives. But I did find an, un, an unused hoggle head in the, uh, in the Amazing. And uh, somewhere I have photographs of me wearing it. <laughs> I'll see well, if I can dig those out. Yeah, I mean, please do. Otherwise, that story is relatively pointless. But if you can find those pictures and put them onto Twitter, that would be incredible. Yeah, it's your turn. What, oh, it is, what's yeah. What's your second recommendation? It is, um, my second recommendation is going to be Hardware. Richard nice. Stanley, 1990. Yeah, great. I love Hardware. It's a really great sort of like grimy sci-fi and there are there are there are feelings of sci-fi about Hellraiser 2 even though it's you know straight horror and hardware is a sci-fi but with obviously very strong horror overtones as well same effects team again um image who were kind of ruling british genre cinema in the 80s mm. yeah it's a um it's set in a, a near future uh, sort of deserty version of a deserty low lowish tech version of the of Blade Runner world, mm. um, where everything is traded for technology, um, and a uh, an old battle robot is brought back in for scrap um, by one of our by our hero, who's a sort of a a futuristic rag and bone man, <laughs> mm. and uh, and it's not as it's not as defunct as people think, and it, it gets reactivated. Um, oh, such it's, a cool it's film. such a great film. Yeah, it's really cool. Nice. I like that a lot. My next recommendation, I was thinking about potentially recommending House by the Cemetery, but I think that's probably a better recommendation for the first Hellraiser. So, you know, I will travel back in time and tell myself to recommend <laughs> that on the last podcast that we did uh, on this franchise. And by the way, we are going to do Hellraiser 3, right? I think we should do all of them. Yeah, definitely. I mean, they're not all on Arrow. They're not so, all on Arrow, yeah. but, you know, when they eventually... Anyway... Uh, I'm not making any promises they do, that they're going to release when Hellraiser 7. Release Hellraiser Deader. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, that's my dream. Um, so no, I, I, instead I'm going to recommend a film called Living Hell from 2000. I don't think I know um, Living Hell. It's, uh, it's, a, it, it's kind of... It's described in the marketing and I think on IMDb as being the Japanese Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And it's not that at all. Um, it does involve a family of cannibals, which is probably where they've got that from. But it is more like it's, it's basically tonally all over the place. It, it's it's incredibly atmospheric, but kind of like Hellraiser 2. They're very similar tonally, basically, but Living Hell is, is is better and more interesting and more disturbing. And it kind of, it has got a sort of martyr's vibe to it in that, you know, it, it wildly veers in different directions and you never quite know what's going on. Not that martyrs is difficult to understand, but I should say uh, you don't know what to expect rather than you don't know what's going on. That's, that's a good thing. Yeah, no, totally. Yeah. And so... Yeah, it, it's a really fun, kind of twisted, gory, different kind of Japanese horror film. Like, you know, what you think of as, as being J-horror is probably, you know, for most people, uh, the, the, the ghosty stuff. Um, whereas this is more of a straight up, weird, nasty, almost slasher movie. Um, but yeah, tonally, I think that if you combined Living Hell and Labyrinth, you would get Hellraiser 2. So um, <laughs> that's my recommendation. That's a fun cocktail. What a double yeah. bill. Yeah, exactly. Oh, my God. But yeah, cool. All right. Uh, recommendations based on the past couple of weeks, Dan. I'm going to... I'm going to... 
hijack very briefly and do a, a non-film recommendation based on Hellraiser 2, which oh, is just Christ. to say that people should go out and read the old Hellraiser comics. Um, yeah. a lot of the problems I have with the canon modifications that occurred in Hellraiser 2 are then sort of refined and made better by the comics. And I, actually, weirdly, I would say that Hellraiser 2 is more responsible for inspiring so many more... Yeah, of the, the 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 stuff in the comics than the first movie. Absolutely. Well, the, it, it's more of a riff on. Yeah. you know. But um, I think it showed that there was this like blowing open of of possibility. Mm. If if comics had been made after the first Hellraiser, I think they would have been pretty one note. But there's it's so varied and so exciting. It's something I was going to. It, mention It's earlier. almost as though they watched Hellraiser two and thought, ah. What a, waste, what a waste! What a waste of a yeah. great premise! Yeah, no, I think you're right. It does. It does feel a bit like that. Like it's so you know com- to compare Hellraiser to Halloween slightly in that uh, ha- that the sequel to Halloween was not meant to have Michael Myers in it. It was meant to be a continuing franchise of films that were all set at Halloween. Yeah, and they'd all be independent and different. And it was only after the success of Halloween that obviously he comes back for the second one. For three, they tried that and that didn't work, and then they just go back to Michael Myers again. Similarly, they didn't know immediately that Pinhead was going to be the the franchisable beat. Yes. The, Pinhead and The Box, I would say, are the two stars of the yeah, yeah. Uh, a franchise. But the comics are closer to the idea of of the Halloween intended sequels, mm-hmm. where they all, they're all based around The, the Box is much more the star of the comics. Not even The Box, just puzzles. Puzzles and the idea of this pain hell yeah um one of my favorite uh stories in the hellraiser comics which is alluded to at the end of hellraiser 4 i think is i think called all the glitters all the glisters uh and it's essentially about a building that is built based on the designs for a box yes and that if you go up to the roof using the right combination of staircases and elevators and that kind of stuff that is solving the problem and that you if you then throw yourself off the roof you kind of vanish before you hit the ground and all that lands is this like shower of gold dust uh, and the idea being that you've been taken to this like paradise place not necessarily realizing that pleasure and pain the line is thin you know heaven to hell you know angel to sun yeah, yeah, yeah. blah blah um and at the end of Hellraiser 4 they walk into that hotel lobby and all of the walls look like the lament configuration and i was like okay well Hellraiser 4 was disappointing but Hellraiser 5 is going to be all the glisters so i am in to- and then it wasn't no <laughs> well um i am going to start off the yeah, recommendations you do that. Sorry. Yeah. um uh, because of your your extra uh, recommend uh, which is definitely credible um those comics you know the vast majority and we're, we're talking about the sort of the 90s yeah. um comics uh, they've there's been sort of more recent like Hellraiser comics and yeah, I, I reviewed at least one of them for SFX and they are fucking garbage. Oh really? Like, yeah, I've really, not I've not dipped in. They're really bad. Um so swerve those and, and go for the nineties stuff. Right, now because Dan is uh, is going away and we're recording these so early, we are recording the episodes where I would traditionally talk about Cannes uh, before I've gone to Cannes. So what I'm going to do is talk about films rather than uh, describing ones that I've seen. 
Uh, I'm going to talk about films that I'm excited about seeing at Cannes, and in the hope that you know I would That's have. Right, like I a little have, I would have wanted to recommend them anyway. So the first recommend, uh, based on that logic, is a film called Ash is Purest White, which is a, a Chinese film that I'm excited about seeing. Um, and it's, uh, it's set in 2001, and it's about uh, a young dancer uh, who falls in love with a gangster and um, ends up uh, shooting someone to protect him, going to prison, coming out of prison, and trying to find him again. That's all I know about it, obviously, nice. because, you know, um, you don't know anything about uh, many of the films that play at Cam. That's because, the beauty you know, of it. That's the joy of discovery. But... Um, uh, because I was going to do this podcast, I thought, you know, I, I should do a bit of research ahead of time rather than just sort of stumbling into films and seeing what turns out. So that is one is that, that I'm excited about. Um, it is, yeah, I think it is. Nice. Yeah, it is. It is in competition. Nice. Yeah. So and who um, have they cast to replace Bruce Campbell now that he's not going to reprise that role? Oh, Dan. <laughs> oh, Dan. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> Uh, what what have you seen in the past couple of weeks? Valid. Yeah, it's valid. Yeah, it's good. <laughs> I finally got round to a film that's been on my list for a long time. I'd never seen it before. It was a first watch. It was quite a hard watch. Avengers Infinity War? No, I've still not seen that. <laughs> <laughs> Even this far in the future. Um, that's sort of on... I was meant to watch it last weekend. Uh, I didn't get around to it. Uh, the weather is beautiful this weekend. If I can get away from the sunshine, I might be going to the cinema to see that this weekend. Yeah, it's good fun. Yeah, I think it's going to be fun. I've managed to stay away from all the spoilers. So. Nice, well done. Yeah, well, you know, just off social media. I'm not off social media at all. I'm no, just, you're not. Just bitching about other films. Exactly. <laughs> um, uh, I watched Dakota for oh, the first okay. time, 1984. Uh, sort of German punk noise film. Uh, it's a it's a tough watch. It's very highly regarded by a lot of people. It's something of a sort of a cult success. It's multilingual in its content, but it's a lot of it's about the sound design and the soundtrack. Uh, it's about a sound and sort of amateur sound engineer and another professional sound engineer, and they get involved in a government project that is using sound to control population, and they uh, sort of take this and start using it as a counterculture tool to cause an uprising from a listless public. So by playing certain sounds to crowds, they can enforce aggression and riots. It's it's pretty exciting. It's got some some uh, pretty good cameos from notable people of the era. Uh, I don't know that much about the director. It's the second film by uh, a um, uh, a director called uh, Musha M U S C H A. Uh, I've not seen uh, any of his other films. He's not with us anymore. I think he took his own life in the early thousands. Mm. Um, but he sounds like a, a sort of a, a a pretty solid linchpin of that sort of like. German punk films like arena and I'll definitely be checking out his other stuff mm. fantastic that sounds very interesting got a good poster as well it's got a frog on it Sam oh now you're talking <laughs> finally should have just said that um <laughs> So my next recommendation, based on all the films that I saw at Lovely Cannes, <laughs> um, and I definitely loved this one, I assume, Black Klansman, uh, the Spike Lee film. 
uh, which is uh, which is playing in competition. Uh, it, the the premise is uh, an Af- it's based on a true story, um, and an African American police officer uh, infiltrates the Ku Klux Klan and becomes the head of the local chapter. It, it's an, a, a quite an amazing premise, really great cast, and obviously it's Spike Lee. I love Spike Lee, and um, you know obviously do do the right thing. Should have won the Palm Door. When it, it it was released, uh, when was that? Nineteen eighty nine. Yeah, it played a can in nineteen eighty nine, um, and uh, Spike Lee is still pissed off that it didn't win, and rightly so. That is a fucking incredible Amazing film. film yeah. um, and can doesn't really work in the same way as the the Oscars do. In that you know, if you deserved it for something else, we'll give it to you. Don't get apology awards. No. So um, I, I would like to predict that Black Klansman will win the Palm Door, but. I haven't seen it yet, though technically I have, and maybe it has won, as I say this. It's all very confusing, <laughs> but everyone go out and see Black Klansman because I assume it's brilliant. Have you read... And I loved it. Have you read the novella, I Spit on Your Grave? No. Little or nothing to do with Miyazaki's um, exploitationer. It's, a, um, it's about a one-eighth black uh, guy who's more aesthetically obviously one eighth black brother was lynched in the south oh, right. uh, infiltrating the white community of the people that killed his brother mm. um, for revenge it was mm. written by a French author in the 50s I think wow. And the, it's, I've never been able to track down the film it was made into a movie the, right. the writer of the novel died of a heart attack in the premiere of the of the film. Wow. Um, I've never been able to see it. it all, all except the last chapter are written in the first person. Mm. It's a diary and it uses a literary version of the slasher's POV. Oh, wow. It's, oh, it's fantastic. That sounds great. Yeah, it's really worth checking out. It's, it's a di- again, another difficult read. It's got some really nasty stuff in it. Right. But it's worth, it also it was written sort of as a bet. The author wrote it. He was, I think he was a French like a slightly aristocratic young man, and he wrote it as a fake diary, mm-hmm. passed it off as as found found footage book equivalent, found pages, and that's obviously broken in the last chapter. But it's it's yeah, it's really fascinating. If you've awesome. not, not read it, awesome. Well, um, that's it for my can recommendations. But I'm going to do some more of those in a couple of weeks. Um, yeah, they're sort of pointless because I haven't actually seen these films, but no, at I least it fair. gives an insight to look into out what. For. That's nice. Yeah, and and also there's a chance I won't even see these films that I want to see because, you know, it's you a bit of a it's a bit of a bun fight, and you've got a queue for <laughs> two hours um, to get into these things. But um, I'm planning on on prioritising the ones that I I mentioned. I have, I have a can podcast. question for you. Would you rather queue in the boiling heat of yeah. can in yeah. your suit that you're required to wear if you're going up the red carpet? Yes. Or would you rather queue in the rain? Oh, in the sun. Absolutely in the sun. Even though uh, me and Dan share um, the, the quality that we <laughs> fucking hate the sunshine, we hate the heat, and we'd much rather it be cold. Weirdly, the can sunshine is pleasant. It's the only pleasant sun that... It's it's not like being hot in the UK where it's all muggy and stuff. Oh, so you can, really sometimes nice. you get that nice sea breeze coming in and, oh, it's and cooling you off, which is good. But ah, having made wait. the mistake of going to a party in a suit that was slightly too heavy for the weather... And then feeling like I'm just sweating through a, a woolen suit. <laughs> the worst of air in the world. Right, good. Dan. My last recommendation. Yes. <laughs> I'll rock through it. It'll be a quick one. Uh, so I watched a film. Hang on a minute. How many have you done? One. Okay, good. <laughs> Dakota. 
Yes, of course. Yeah. Um, but but I, we have witted about a bunch of other stuff, so <laughs> we can uh, we can keep this short. We're not we're not doing too bad. Do we have any extra features today? No. Okay. Well, then we can. This will be fine. Yeah. This is this is a slightly weird one. It sort of fits, I guess, with your um, your can structure because this is not a film I watched in the last couple of weeks, but it's a film I was reminded by by a film I watched in the last couple of weeks that I watched specifically because I thought it might be something I recommended, and then it wasn't. So I. Um, I watched uh, The Adventurers, which is a 2017 Stephen Fung heist film mm-hmm. uh, starring Andy Lau. Uh, I like Andy Lau. Uh, I like heist movies. It looked like fun, slightly big budget Hong Kong craziness. It is not great by any means. Uh, it relies far too heavily on tech that is impossible, which I hate in a heist movie. I mm-hmm. like heists to be really well thought out logical things. Yeah. So I went back and looked at Stephen Fung on uh, on IMDb and sort of looked at some of his previous stuff. Uh, he started out as an actor and he was in uh, Thunderbolt. So a 1995 Jackie Chan movie, one of his uh, serious movies made for the Japanese market. Uh, crime story, uh, Thunderbolt were the first two, both great. And then later on, Shinjuku Incident and some other things more recently. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've always been, I've always liked that edge of the Jackie Chan stuff. I think he actually works very well as a serious actor. Uh, Thunderbolt isn't the highest brow of those. Uh, I think Shinjuku Incident probably is, but Thunderbolt's the first one I saw mm-hmm. um, and is really, really worth checking out. If you can find not a dub, uh, I have an American DVD of it that replaced my old VHS, and I didn't find out until I got rid of until I'd already got rid of the VHS oh, no. that the DVD is dubbed, uh, which is <sighs> grotesque. Yeah, um, there are subtitled versions out there. It's yeah, it's really worth tracking down. It's very fun, and cool. it's got an amazing pachinko fight where they're smashing open the machines, and there are just ball bearings everywhere. Cool, that was great fun. Yeah, that's a that's a winner in my book. Great. Right. Let us move into extra features. Extra features. Extra features. So we do have extra features. Well, we sort of do. Yeah, we've got we've got some letters. We have. Uh, yes. We haven't got any. Um, we haven't got any. Uh, what's it called? <laughs> <laughs> I haven't got any interviews. There we go. Andre uh, got back in touch. Andre Martins, mm-hmm. who's messaged us before, he said the Buckaroo Banzai made his Monday uh, journey back home from work less frustratingly long. He shared my opinion to some extent because he hadn't come to it when he was young. He says he could obviously see why people love these films, though, so I think he's very much on the same page as subjective enjoyment and, yeah. and not, yeah, yeah. not shitting on other people's love of films, Absolutely, which is nice. But the real reason he contacted us was on the same episode. In our recommendations, we talked about long films and that being a sort of an enticement to us. Uh, he says, obviously, the flip side of that is that mainstream films are often getting a little overblown now, uh, a little too long, and so he wants to know, A, what is the difference between why like an older film being long or like a not super mainstream film being long can be of a, an allure to us, but also how we could uh, convince uh, friends that long doesn't equal boring uh, because they've been burnt by things like Hunger Games uh, and the Hobbit trilogy. And so now friends won't listen to him when he recommends things like Solaris or Seven Samurai. <laughs> Uh, because they assume that I've got a solution for this. Yeah, um, new friends. <laughs> so yeah, new friends, better friends. No, I'm only joking. I'm sure your friends are lovely, Andre, uh, and and we are your friends. Uh, I, I'd and say. we'll watch long films. Yeah, we'll watch them with you. Um, come round. No, I was having a conversation about this literally this morning oh. um, with Yunatli. Uh, he's just watched uh, The Wailing for the first time, which is an incredible film, another recommendation. And he commented on the fact that, you know, sometimes 
You know, you get home from work and you're not in the mood for a three-hour movie. For some reason, yeah. it, it feels like climbing a mountain. But, you know, if you do sort of make that push, uh, it can be invigorating. And my solution is um, the 10-minute rule, which is I will watch the first 10 minutes of any film, whether it's three hours long or, or yeah. 75 minutes long. And if it doesn't grab me or prove itself to me in the first 10 minutes, I'll switch it off and watch something else. So... You know, if you apply that to uh, a super long film, then, you know, if, if you're involved enough in the first 10 minutes, then it will push you through to, to the conclusion. Yeah. It, it's often, it's more about starting um, than anything else with, with that kind of length of a film. So if you can take that intimidation element out of it and think, oh, well, you know, technically this could be a 10 minute film if it's rubbish. I don't have to sit through the whole thing. <laughs> um, you'll either, you know, save yourself a lot of time or have an amazing evening in the company of a film that invigorates you for three hours. So, yeah, yeah, that's a very, yeah, that's a, a good, a good method. There we go. Any, any from you, Dan, any advice? No, that's, I mean, that's it. Like, I think the, you're right that it's often that they feel insurmountable. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, see if it see if it lures you in. You'll you'll forget to check whether it's been ten minutes if it's a great film. Exactly. Uh, yeah, yeah. So yeah, I, just assure your friends that and, they and don't have weirdly, to watch it if they're not enjoying it. And weirdly, the more you do it, the more your instinct you don't have to keep checking. You're just like, oh, it must be ten minutes by now. Bang, ten minutes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Or We've sometimes had that a few it, times doing this together, and sometimes it's three minutes, and uh, yeah. you know that's when you really—that's when you really know you're going to turn it off. But anyway, do we have another letter? We do. We've got two more. Two more. Uh, How so are we this doing one's for more time? For you. Should we push? We're uh, all right. Okay. We've, well, we've got an extra feature for next next time, so a proper extra feature. Have we? Yeah. Oh. So this one uh, says, "Hi guys, this is from Gareth Parkinson." Uh, these, these are by, by the way Gareth and Andre we still consider these to be proper extra features by the way what do you mean you just said next week we've got a, next time we've got a proper extra feature I'm, yeah sorry no I don't mean that I mean like we've got an interview <laughs> these, this is <laughs> okay <laughs> not to besmirch any of our lovely listeners and we super appreciate the uh, I don't like where emails. this is going and letters are uh, the trailer reel filmographies and animated menus of extra features whereas interviews are the interviews of extra features well is that I, fair? I think that's very unfair myself <laughs> i think that letters are more like uh, a lovely uh, fan commentary much like Ooh. the one that we did for not that i'm describing our listeners as fans but much like the one we did for the villainess where you know we're not necessarily connected to the thing, but it's lovely to hear from us all the same. So that's how I feel about letters. I've, I've changed my position. Oh, here we the go. The letters are a really good booklet. Oh, even, that yeah. It comes that, with the disc. I'll go with that as well. Definitely. That is, yeah, yeah absolutely. There you go. Yeah. Not, not a trailer reel or an animated reel. menu. Or a filmography. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, that was unfair. I apologise. Um, so, Gareth says, Hi guys, another great podcast. I have a phantom question. Uh, Phantom of the Paradise. I remember seeing this film on TV in the early 80s when Channel 4 first showed it. I remember from that viewing that we got to see Winslow's mutilated face after the scene where his head is caught in the vinyl press, but every time I saw the film on TV or video, that scene has been gone. I actually got to the point where I think I must have imagined it. When I watched the extras on the Arrow Blu-ray, there was a scene I remembered as a deleted scene, so I remembered, if you might know, why the scene uh, wasn't added to the Blu-ray, so it was an uncut version. And did Channel 4 get an accidental version of the film to show? Keep up the good work. Kind regards, Gareth Parkinson. There's sort of three things in there. 
The first Im- I immediately think of is the time that Channel 4 accidentally showed the uncut version of The Devils. Yeah. The Devils. So that isn't completely impossible. No, it definitely isn't. They also accidentally, quote unquote, accidentally uh, showed the uncut version of Evil Dead. Yes. Robert Alvarez's yeah, Evil yeah, yeah. Dead, which has never been available anywhere else. And even he was confused that it was accessible um, to Channel 4. And, it, you know, it's still not available on Blu-ray. Please, someone release that. I love Fede's Evil Dead. And, in fact, he put up a, a Twitter um, poll today, um, which will be long in the past by the time you re- hear this, but um, basically asking uh, his followers to choose between three options in terms of what he does in the future. Either Evil Dead 2, Don't Breathe 2, or Stop Making Films. <laughs> um, and... Uh, I absolutely love Fede, um, and God, I voted for Evil Dead 2. God, I'd so love to see that. And maybe it's maybe the reason he's doing it is because it could be potentially likely to happen now that Ash versus Evil Dead has uh, officially been cancelled. Yeah, maybe that doing? opens up the film universe once more. But anyway, uh, in answer to these questions, I didn't see the Channel 4 version, so um, I believe it exists, but I, I, I didn't see it. In terms of Arrow... Um, producing an uncut version. It could very well be that similar to the situation with Fede, that wasn't necessarily De Palma's preferred version. Um, And it could be that they broadcast an an earlier cut and um, he decided that that scene's better off out of it. And, you know, best of both worlds, at least you've got it as a deleted scene and your sanity has been confirmed to be um, uh, unquestionably... Solid. Yeah, I think you didn't imagine it. Is what I'm trying to say. It's people often assume that the longer version is the director's cut, and uh, we we got a a question on Twitter uh, recently about the two versions of the of Battle Royale, which Mm -hmm. obviously is out on Arrow, Uh, and people often refer to the longer version of Battle Royale as the director's cut. It's not. That's a that's a misunderstanding from a mistitling of one of the Asian box sets. Mm. Uh, I think maybe a Korean box set or a Thai box set Mm. um, came out with it marked as um, the director's cut, but it's not. No, this um, is it. This is it. I, I, um, there's a version of Frankenstein's creature that um, people have seen and and have uh, you know written lovely things about, and you know I, I like that version. But uh, we did another round of edits where we took stuff away, and often taking stuff away is is so much better oh, than, than adding stuff. Um, so much better. It's kind of like chiseling uh, a sculpture. Uh, where you know the more you take away the better it is and so um, if that initial version was to be released I wouldn't be happy Um, you know I much prefer the version where we've sort of taken little tiny things away it makes such a difference so yes that is a a long answer to a short question but um, but there we go is that it for letters we have another more one more This is going to be a feature-length episode. I can't see the time from where I'm sitting, and Dan assures me that, you know, oh, it's fine, it's fine. It will be be fine. Okay, good. Uh, So this is a quick one. I don't think it requires much in the way of answering. It's not a question. It's just a a statement, which I like. Mm -hmm. It's from Chris uh, Tharian, I Mm -hmm. think. Is this how you pronounce it? I apologise if I got that wrong. He says, Hi, Sam and Dan. I just wanted to write a quick thank you for the Threads recommendation. I've been having extra nightmares and anxiety since watching this. Well done. (laughs) It has definitely stuck with me. I'm very glad that Severin released this Blu-ray. Also, one of my favourite punk bands growing up called Conflict used several samples from this film. I had no idea Threads is where the clips came from, so it was a real treat to make that connection. Thank ah, you. That's, but that's always that. good. It's, yeah, it's always nice when you when you find the origin of a good sample. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, in fact, a, a song sample uh, is the reason I kind of got into horror in the first place in the early 90s. And actually, it kind of ties to Hellraiser too, because it's around the time that I saw um, the Hellraiser films as well. Basically, there I used to be really into drum and bass uh, when I was a young man, and there was a song called Scotty, um, by uh, Subnation, which is available on YouTube if you want to listen to it, um, which sampled, I didn't know this at the time, I assumed it was Star Trek, because the sample just says, um, is there a way around the bridge, Scotty, Scotty? Um, and obviously there's a Mr. Scott in Star Trek, and there's also a bridge, so I put two and two together and came up with a wrong answer, because a friend informed me that it's actually a sample from the original Evil Dead, uh, which I then hunted out because I loved the song so much and I wanted to see the samples, you know, in the proper context. And that is the film that changed my life and made me a horror addict. Um, I'd avoided it previously because I was quite a scared child. Ghostbusters made me cry in the cinema. <laughs> I was fucking terrified of Ghostbusters. It was that library ghost and I spent the whole rest of the film thinking that something that scary was going to happen again and couldn't enjoy the, uh, the excellent comedy of uh, Bill Murray and the rest. But uh, yeah, so uh, samples can, film samples can, uh, can, a gateway, a gateway uh, drug. can be a gateway drug, exactly. And on that absolute bombshell, it's time <laughs> to wrap this three-hour episode up. Thank you so much for listening. And we promise we'll be more professional next time. We do. All right. See you then. Bye-bye. Thanks bye. so much. Bye.